0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. That was so beautiful. You know, A.W. Tozer once said that worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. I don't know if that's true anymore because over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a real movement toward worship. I mean, for too long it was all about, you know, what you do. And lost in that sometimes is the concept of who God is. And that very important moment of us just being transparent and authentic before the Lord. I don't know that we've got it completely right, because in some ways we've tied it too much to music. Uh, Are you tracking with me? I mean, normally when you say, hey, let's worship God, what does it normally mean to you? Well, let's have some music. Uh, Let's Get somebody to play. Let's get somebody to sing. Let's get a smoke machine and some lights, and then we can worship. Would it surprise you to know that most of the people worshiping Jesus, there was never music involved? I'm not saying that music is a bad thing. I mean, I personally, when I sing, I it's just easy for me in that moment to be lost in it and to worship God. And through singing, I love that. Don't you? I mean. I love that part of it, but we can't only make it about music because if we do, we miss far more opportunities to worship Jesus because if it's only about music, then it can only be done in places like this, but if worship is something more than that, well, it's not confined to a place, right? And the word worship really just means to ascribe worth to. The most common word for worship in the New Testament was a word proskuneo. That's the old Greek word. It comes from two words. The word pros means to or toward, and a kunos was a dog. And so the idea of worship was to dog toward. Literally, they would translate it to lick the hand. It's the same kind of reaction that you get from your dog, if it's a good dog, If you've got a golden retriever, this is your dog. When you walk into the room, he loses his mind. And he'll run at you and knock you down and, and get the, some sort of weird golden retriever willies and start, you know, moaning. And who's got a golden retriever? Am I telling the truth? I've got an old blind, deaf, and can't smell border collie. But she's the same way. As soon as she finds out I'm there, at half halftime you walk up to her and kind of surprise her, <laughs> and then she's just all over it because she just wants to pour herself out. And in that moment, it's just so about me and not about her. It's just she can't get any closer. If she can, she'll crawl up in the chair with me and put her head right here, and I'm like, get down, get down, you stink, you know? Aren't you glad God's not that way? But that's the idea of worship. It's the idea of the way our dogs respond to us. And that's the idea that we need to get our heads around because sometimes you can worship through music, but most of the time it's not necessary. And, and it's got kind of to to a space. Let me show you something. John chapter 12. There's a woman who shows us how to worship. John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Take your Bibles out, turn your devices on. Let's look at it. Uh, John is the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So if you open your New Testament, you can find that in your Bible. Uh, if you hit Matthew, go right. If you if you hit Acts or something like that, go back to the left. You'll find it in a second. John was one of the 12 disciples. He was the one whom Jesus loved. And his gospel that we've been studying was not a chronological, moment-by-moment, ordered work. He basically was filling in the gaps on stories and insights to those stories that might have been left out of the other three Gospels. Uh, and in verse 1, he, he adds some stuff to a story that is already written in uh, Matthew 26 and Mark 14. So this story is included in three of the four Gospels, Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12, of course. And so verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, so this would have been Sabbath, Saturday, because Jesus celebrated the Passover that year on Thursday, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving... But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So he's in Bethany. Bethany's a little village about two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus would use Bethany as his staging point for the last week of his earthly ministry. He'd come and go to the temple from Bethany. And there was a family there that he loved desperately, uh, Mary, Martha, and her brother Lazarus. And if you read back over John 11, if you weren't with us last time, you'll see that Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. And so this is that same family. Now, Matthew and Mark don't tell us who the woman was in this story, but John does, of course. He says it was Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus. But Matthew and Mark tell us something that John doesn't tell us. He tells; They tell us where it happened. It happened at the home of a man named Simon the leper. Um, and both Matthew and Mark say that, which is interesting because You know, you're so familiar with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and the fact that he'd been in their home before. Luke 12 talks about a time he was in their home. And and they sort of represent the whole village of Bethany and the stories of the New Testament that we would have naturally assumed that this would have occurred in their home. But it didn't. It occurred instead at the home of Simon the leper. And let me tell you something. That's a game changer for me. Now, we don't know anything at all about Simon the leper except that he was a leper. He had leprosy and and no doubt he was one of those lepers that Jesus had healed. And and now they're in his home. And so all of a sudden I'm trying to imagine a leper's home. I mean leprosy was Such a horrible, disfiguring disease. It basically, you lose the feeling, you lose the nerve endings, and then, uh, because of that, you don't know when there's an injury. It happens in the feet and the hands, and so the injury gets infected. They begin to lose fingers, lose hands, lose limbs. They, their nose would, you know, they'd lose their nose, lose their ears. It was just a horribly disfiguring disease. And by virtue of that, it was also an isolating disease. And so people with leprosy were put outside the community. They were basically, you go over there, and anytime you come into contact with people, you have to shout, unclean, unclean. And so they tended to live in colonies. And so this is that guy's house. And I'm thinking, well, if you were a leper, I mean, there's no way possible that you're going to live a normal life and have any sort of means. So it, it couldn't have been a very large home. I mean, I, we were in Uganda last year, and uh, we were in some areas of extreme poverty, and in Kenya, areas of extreme poverty, and it was not uncommon for some of those homes to be no bigger than what we in America would call a shed, and oftentimes, there would be no door. They would just hang a, like a, what is the equivalent to us of a beach towel over the doorway, and that was the home. And that was where the people lived, and that was their lifestyle. And I'm thinking, first century leper, this has got to be a really small house. And he can't be very well kept because, I mean, he didn't have time for all that. He's subsistence. He's living hand to mouth on the generosity of people that would walk down the street and somehow throw him a a shekel or something. And then there's the whole problem with the disease of leprosy, right? Right? I mean, he healed Jesus of leprosy, but there's nothing that says he went through the house with Clorox. Where's that disease now? Is it is it still there? It says Martha was preparing dinner, and Martha's kind of she's kind of a stickler for details. She's a bit fastidious. So, so Martha, you got to know, Martha is cleaning everything. She's boiling things. She's scrubbing things. She's cleaning things. And Martha's doing what Martha does. But then in verse 3, Mary comes in and does what Mary does. Mary then took a pound, that's 16 ounces, a pound of very costly perfume. And then he adds pure nard. And nard was, it's more like a lotion than perfume is sort of a, you know, like more like water, whereas nard would be more like a lotion. And anointed the feet of Jesus And wiped his feet with her hair. And here's the classic, beautiful understatement of John. (laughs) And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now get this, Mary enters the room with this vial of costly nard. She pours it out. And, and she doesn't put a few drops on, you know, and hey, smell this. How do you think it's, you know, when, the few times that I go and buy Amy perfume, you know, when I remember that that's my job as a husband and I've forgotten it for several years and I go to the Dillard's and get some perfume and I'm like, what? does what she like? She likes the perfume. She likes stuff that smells good. They're like, well, do you know what? Uh, let's try some. And you know what they'll do? They'll, they'll take a little card and they'll put a drop or two on the card and then they wave it around. I don't know why. And then they'll go, smell. Yeah, that's nice. That's probably her. Smell this one. Yeah, I think that's her too. Yeah, that's her too, you know. <laughs> she didn't wave some card. She took a gallon Follow of that stuff and she's she chugging the thing in a room that's probably 12 by 12, packed with smelly people. They didn't have, you know, deodorant and, you know, old spice and stuff like that. I mean, this place is packed, wall-to-wall, smelly people, and she has just poured a gallon of this stuff it's like shock and awe on the olfactory system. You know, people are, their eyes are starting to water, people are sneezing, their nose is running and coughing, and you know, I just think that smoke machine makes me cough, you know, I mean, these guys, this worship was was rough, and imagine how over, overwhelming that smell must have been, and, and now she's wiping it with her hair, and the smell is on him and on her, and it's everywhere. It's that beautiful understatement. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And not everyone was excited about that moment of transparent worship. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why has this perfume not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? What a, what a piece of work this guy is. I mean, he's already determined to uh, betray Jesus. He couldn't care less about any of this stuff. But all he's thinking about is money. And and he has the audacity to criticize this woman in this beautiful moment of worship when he doesn't even care about any of that stuff. But you know, he might not have been the only one sniping because Matthew tells us this, but the disciples, plural, were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? The disciples, and then Mark said, but some, that means more than one, were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? And so John lays the whole thing at the feet of Judas. And, you know, maybe he was the one that started it, likely, you know, and it only takes one bad apple. It's interesting, you know, they did some research this past year, and I read the report that one bad apple really does ruin the whole bunch. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, I wonder who spent that money on research. But when you get one complainer, one critic, one person that's pretending to be indignant about the waste, The waste. Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas was just about Judas. Verse 6, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas... You know, I've always thought about this. Jesus knew Judas pilfered the money box. So why did he let Judas have the money box? Wouldn't Matthew have been a more likely candidate? I mean, he was a tax collector, kind of an accountant. Why did he give it to Judas? And then the only thing I can come up with is that verse in Romans 1 where it says, he gave them over to the lust of their flesh. And I think sometimes, and we don't realize this, that the judgment of God is to get what you desire, and in Judas's case, it just became this obsession with money, so much so that he would sell out Jesus for 30 shekels, right? Now think about what he could have done with the expense of that costly perfume. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it. Now look at this, for the day of my burial. For the day of my burial. You know, centuries ago, archaeologists started cracking open these tombs of ancient Romans, ancient Greeks. And in addition to the to the bodies and the caskets that they found in these graves, they found these bottles, these little bottles. Some of them were pretty small, about the size of a test tube. They were made of quartz and terracotta. The most valuable were made of alabaster. And they couldn't figure out what they were for. And so they're like, well, what were they using these bottles for? And somebody came up with the idea that well maybe they were using them as tear bottles and what they would do is in the funeral process they would catch the tears and then in homage to the person that they're grieving, uh, they would toss the tear bottles into the grave before they rolled the stone over or shut it up or whatever they they did in that particular instance. And and there were a couple of instances in ancient literature. One was in the Iliad. Homer makes this allusion to capturing tears in a bottle. Uh, And in uh, Psalm 56, it talks about capturing tears in a bottle. And so the idea was, well, maybe that's what it was about. They had a problem with that, though, because both of those allusions to this practice were highly figurative and metaphorical. They didn't really describe the routine of the day. And nowhere in ancient literature could they find anything that said anything about a common practice of capturing tears in a bottle, especially in the Jewish literature, but it was the best they had, so they said, well, it must be that, and so, you know, these are tear bottles, and that's what they became known as, tear bottles. And then finally, modern technology catches up with history and archaeology, and they took some of those bottles that had been collected and they tested what was in them. And they found to their surprise, there wasn't any DNA and salt of tears. But what they found instead was the residue of the oils and the ingredients of perfume. And, and I, when I read that stuff, I, I, I realized the beauty of the scripture. You know, here's the Bible. This, this particular thing was written 1900 years ago. And there's no way in the, in the flow of history that anybody could have really fully understood this practice. And yet it's described precisely here and, and scientific investigation validated this practice precisely that as a part of the preparation for burial, they would pour perfume over the person that was to be buried. Just like, just like Jesus said she was doing. And here's another little bit and this won't be on the test. But uh, this is an interesting little side note, is that some of the ingredients they found in those bottles, the residue of the ingredients, is actually contained elements that are used in modern perfume making. One in particular uh, that I thought was fascinating is an ingredient called patchouli, which is a, an oily aromatic flower out of East Asia that was used then and is used now in a variety of bases for modern perfume. Um, Dolce Gabbana uses it, but the one in particular is Coco Chanel Mademoiselle. is based on patchouli, and all of a sudden I, I thought, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be weird if if the fragrance those guys smelled in that room when she broke open that bottle was Chanel Mademoiselle Coco? <laughs> huh. But I find it fascinating that modern science once again validates the scripture. She was preparing him for burial. Now, Jesus, that's what he said. And the very next day, which was Sunday, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they would throw palm fronds in front of him and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then six days after that, that same crowd would cry out, crucify him. And on that Friday morning, they would have him on the cross. And by Friday evening, he was dead in the grave. And I I doubt Mary had any of that in mind. I think she was just worshiping. But in that moment, others criticized her extravagance. Why didn't you give this to the poor? And Jesus, you know, he told them I'm going to paraphrase. Jesus said, shut up about the poor. That's the Bildai translation. Verse 8, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. I hate this, but it's true. No amount of money is ever going to solve poverty. You say, why? Because poverty isn't so much a resource problem as it is a sin problem. That's, That's what's causing poverty. I mean, obviously, one of the sins is greed, right? I read recently that there are that there are in America right now 735 billionaires, 735 billionaires. And those 735 billion, you know, you know how much a billion is? Now, there are 22 million millionaires in America. There are 735 billionaires. And somebody told me this. My son Matthew told me this. I didn't believe him, so I had to look it up. I had to do the math. If you were to convert a million into seconds Do you know how long a million seconds is? 11 and a half days. Don't pull out your phone and start trying to figure it out right now. Just trust me, go home, and then you can figure it out. It's 11 and a half days. Do you know how many seconds a billion is? 31 years, eight months, 15 days, one billion. That's the difference between a billion and a million. There are 735 billionaires who have more money than they could ever, really, ever in their lives conceive of spending. And they control the assets equivalent to the bottom 50% of people in America combined. In other words, 735 people have the resources, the same resources as the combined resources of 175 million people. Are you tracking with me on this? It's not about having enough at that point. It's about something else. We can't define how much is enough. And I like to think, well, if I was a billionaire, I wouldn't be a billionaire for long. I like to think that if I was a billionaire, I would give it away and I wouldn't be a billionaire. And then I look in the mirror and see myself and realize I'm a sinner too. It's hard for me to define how much is enough. So the problem is greed. The problem's also corruption. It's part of the problem. I've been in third world countries where, you know, food comes in, the world takes an offering, there's a famine, everybody sends in food, you know, we sing we are the world and all that stuff. But that food comes into warehouses that are overseen by corrupt governments who are only gonna give it to the people who are on their side and they let it rot. And then addiction's the problem. If there's an addiction in the family, And if addiction and abuse are in the family, then want and need are in the home. Laziness is a problem. Proverbs says, lazy people are soon poor, hard workers get rich. So it's not a poverty problem. It's a financial problem. It's a sin problem. That's why it'll never be eradicated. And Jesus isn't saying give up on that. He's just saying it's just as valid to use assets to worship God. So let me offer two quick insights and I'm done. The first is this when it comes to worship. Worship is costly, I mean, when you consider the scenes of Mary's life, Lazarus was sick. He was about to die. They were desperate. They send word to Jesus. He delays not one day, two days. He finally comes. Martha goes to him and says what Mary couldn't say. If you'd have been here, my brother would have lived. And then he sends for Mary and she comes and she whispers what Martha's already shouted, if you'd have been here. And then Jesus does the impossible. He does the unthinkable. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And now Mary, consumed with the guilt of doubting Jesus, consumed with the anguish of, of what she had gone through and the relief of seeing her brother brought back to life, she can't help but worship And so to express how she felt, she took the thing she valued above everything else and broke it and poured it on Jesus. It was in an alabaster vial, both Matthew and Luke say, which would have been the most costly of perfume. Judas estimated its value at 300 denarii. Mark says the same thing. 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. That's 300 days wages. Man, I went out. Amy's Amy's favorite... uh, Perfume is Chanel Coco Eau de Parfum. Three point four ounces costs one hundred and nineteen dollars. And so I go and buy her some perfume. Bring it home. Isn't it funny how when a guy spends what he thinks is extravagant on perfume, he makes such a big deal about it? Now I might go out and you know buy a piece of buy a tool that costs five hundred dollars. That's, that's that's a tool. I bought perfume for $100. And man, you don't let it go either, do you? She walks by, is that that expensive perfume I got you? You know? I'm not saying $100 is chump change, but that's about what it costs to feed four at a Mexican restaurant these days. You know what I'm saying? So she's not getting all that excited about it. I can't imagine... 300 denarii is 300 days wages that's a year's if you make $20 an hour that's $40,000 this is a woman who probably didn't have extraordinary means and yet she took the thing she valued the most $40,000 worth of perfume and wasted it on Jesus and you know there's something to that i'm not saying you have to spend a lot of money to worship it's just that when real authentic worship happens the things we value change in a way that's what real worship is it's realigning our values So here's something to think about, okay? Just just think about this. Giving is a far more revealing act of worship than singing. You see, giving costs me something. Singing costs me nothing. Maybe that's why the the old prophet said, never appear before God empty-handed. Maybe that's why every time they worshiped in the Old Testament, they came bringing something. They'd drag a lamb to bring it to Jesus, to present it to Him. And it's really not about the giving, it's about the heart, it's about the worship. And worship is costly. It's costly, and it ought to be costly. But more important than that, worship is abandoned. It's losing yourself. It's thinking more of God and less of me. It's not thinking of yourself less. It's thinking. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That's what happens. That's when that dog jumps up on you. He's not thinking about him. He is consumed with you, and that's where worship comes in. Mary didn't really seem to care about anyone else in that room. She was lost in that moment. You know, there's another episode where this occurs of a woman who pours perfume on Jesus. Only this one occurred in Galilee in the home of a Pharisee by a woman who was considered sinful. She was described as sinful. It's it's uh, found in Luke chapter 7. In fact, it's not a it's not a woman who committed a sin. It's not a woman who is involved in some sin, but the description is present active characteristic of her life. She was des- defined Luke 7:37 as a sinner. Hamartolas. It's present active sin defined her life. It's like Rahab the harlot. This woman, the sinner. And almost always that would imply some public ongoing sin and almost always tied to that would be some immoral public ongoing sin. So she's consumed in sin. She's a serial adulteress or she's a prostitute. There's something, there's something bad going on in her life. And, uh, you know, there's something damaging to sexual sin. Young people, listen to me right now. There's something really damaging to sexual sin. Uh, Paul talks about it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18. He said, every other sin is outside the body, but the one who sins immorally sins against himself. And there's, I think we're starting to discover this in, in modern culture, in the hookup culture, uh, how lonely and empty, are those good words? Uh, demoralizing, shame-producing, skill-producing that that lifestyle is. It's just such an empty thing because what you're longing for is genuine love and you're, you're, you're looking for value and that produces the exact opposite of that. It objectifies you, male and female. And so here's a woman who is crushed by her shame. She's just crushed by it. It's interesting to me, Mary worshiped to express her gratitude for what Jesus had done, but this woman worshiped him for what she hoped he would do. And so she's crushed by her shame. She can't find any way out of it. She's certainly not going to find forgiveness in the Pharisee system of legalism because that's the one that that tagged her with that. She's a woman who's a sinner, right? So she doesn't know where where to go. And she hears that there's this man, Jesus, And grace and mercy and healing and forgiveness reside in his heart. And so she enters this room, just like Mary, and she broke open the bottle of alabaster perfume, and she poured it on Jesus. But this time, you know what else is different? She was weeping. Mary wasn't weeping. But the description that they give isn't that she was just weeping like crying. She's bawling her eyes out. I mean, this is ugly crying. This is sobbing, snot running, mascara running, hair's a mess, no makeup, shame, no pretense, brokenness, crying. And she's kissing his feet. And the Bible says that there's so much tears involved that there's water everywhere. She's wiping them with her hair. and And then she does something and it makes me laugh because of the situation, They're in the house of a Pharisee. Pharisees are rigid, uptight, by the rules. She starts kissing his feet. She's like sobbing. Everything, body fluids everywhere and perfume everywhere. And she just starts kissing his feet in front of those Pharisees. And you know, in their twisted, dirty mind, there's only one reason a woman would ever kiss a man, and it had to be immoral. And so they're filled with judgment. If you knew who this woman was and what her backstory is, you'd never let her touch you like that. But here's the cool part of it. She didn't care and Jesus didn't care. Because in that moment, she was worshiping him. And in that moment, the Bible says, and you go back and read it in Luke 7, Jesus forgave her of, her of her sins and she was healed. And she was lost in that overwhelming grace of God and she worshipped. Just a broken woman and a broken bottle of perfume lost in the act of worship. So let me ask you one question. When was the last time you worshipped like that? Would you pray with me? Father I'm so grateful <clears throat> excuse me that the church today has rediscovered worship <clears throat> but father we still have so far to go if we only make it about singing Help us to realize that worship is a costly thing and that it involves abandon. It's no longer about us. We're not thinking about how this might look on some social media post. We're lost in you. As these women, were lost in you. God, I want to be lost in you. So teach me to worship like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.